Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I had been in skating for a few years, and all the years before that, I was just listening to what my mom and my coaches kind of told me to do, and I would just do it. But around 13, 14, 15, I started really like vibing with hip hop music, break dancing, dressing in a certain way. Like I was, you know, I had a certain culture that I loved to follow and I identified with. And so then I wanted to start bringing that into my world of figure skating, because again, it's, yes, it's a sport, but it's also an art form. You get to explore and choose what you want to skate to. And when I started bringing those ideas up, they'd be like, nah, that's not going to work. Like the judges are, you know, they're old school. They're not going to like it. But then I started to try to force things a little bit and wanted to grow my hair, get cornrows. And people from Team Canada or a different place would come to me and be like, you know, if I wanted to grow my hair and let it out, they'd be like, oh, it looks dirty. It looks nappy. Like cut your hair or you can't wear this because it's too sloppy. It's too. And so that's when I started to realize that, okay, like what I identify with and who I am again, isn't really accepted in the sport. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Light Watkins show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they have identified with as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Okay, so during the pandemic, when everybody seemed to be watching the same stuff on Netflix and on social media, there was this viral clip that was reposted by Jada Pinkett Smith, I believe, of a black ice skater who pulled his car over next to a frozen lake. He laced up his skates and then he got out and he started crip walking in his skates over that frozen lake and then it showed him figure skating and then doing backflips and there was hip-hop music playing i mean it was crazy it was everywhere and i started following this guy his name was elage balde i didn't know much about his backstory but apparently he was some retired figure skater who had started a non-profit to get more people of color into the sport anyway i had just started my podcast and i wanted to get elage onto the show way back then. And recently he and I started following one another on social media. And then one day he reposted something that I had posted. And I was like, okay, this is the time to reach out and invite Elijah onto my show, which honestly is not something I'm super comfortable with, at least not without having some sort of mutual connection or a warm introduction. But turns out Elijah had just been listening to my podcast the day before. And so he enthusiastically accepted my invitation because he was a fan of the show. I was super excited about that. And now here we are. I get to be in conversation with someone whose mission I truly admire. And after doing more research into his background, 
his superhero origin story is even more amazing than I first imagined. Elijah's parents migrated to Canada from Russia. He was introduced to skating at the age of seven by his Russian mother, and he resisted it at first. He grappled with being black as a skater and trying to fit in. And all the while, his parents were struggling in the background with the exorbitant costs associated with figure skating and hiring coaches. But then Elijah started winning competitions. And that's when he became more and more obsessed with the sport. He won the junior silver medal at the 2007 Canadian Championships. Then he won the 2008 Junior Championship. In 2009, he experienced a knee injury, but then he bounced back and continued winning. And his dream was to go to the Olympics in 2014 to return and skate in his birth country. But... He finished fourth, and they were only going to take the top three qualifiers. So you can imagine how heartbreaking that was. Plus, he was told by his mentors that his look didn't fit in with the traditional figure skating culture. And if he wanted to win more, he should consider conforming. Alaj then took a trip to Africa to visit his father's village, and that's when everything changed. He stopped focusing so much on making the Olympics, and he started skating with more of a purpose. And that purpose was to tell his story. And he was going to do that through the way he carried himself, through the way he moved, the way he dressed, to the music that he skated to. And then after another series of debilitating concussions, Alaj ended up retiring from competition, having won an impressive number of medals, and he began performance skating. Then he and 10 other skaters formed the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance to facilitate the involvement of racialized youth in sport. And it was around that time that Elaj began filming himself skating on what they call wild ice, which is in the middle of a frozen lake. And it was one of those moments that was captured by his wife, which happened to be the clip that everybody in the world saw. And ironically, Elaj was very reluctant to film that day, but his wife insisted. He relented. And after it went viral, all the agents and the brands started reaching out. Everybody wanted to know who is this light skinned brother with long curly hair doing backflips on ice, dressed like he's going to a nightclub. And now we can make the argument that Elage has become one of figure skating's bona fide social media stars. So I am super excited to dive into Elage's backstory with you and talk about all of the ups and the downs of what it's like for a young biracial kid to find his way in the world of figure skating and come back from not qualifying for his dream of making the Olympics and how after every concussion, he found the courage to keep getting back onto the ice. And I think you're really, really going to love this conversation and you'll be super inspired just like I was. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Mr. Elaj Balde. Elaj Balde, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you on here. I've been following your work for a little while. I was one of those people that saw your video that went viral. It's like, who is this dude? <laughs> doing backflips back on ice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, it's interesting. Jasmine Mason, you know her? Dancer? Yeah. So we met online, connected to her book about her boyfriend's shirt or something like this. And then she came onto the podcast. And I think that's one of the ways I found out about your work. 
it's because I was like scrolling through her social media. And then I saw some image of you guys doing some dance thing together and some in like Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The juju, juju so it's just funny. Beat. That's right. It's funny how these things come together, man. And so here we are having a conversation yeah, well, on the podcast. Yeah. It's really interesting for me too, because I started following you after my wife introduced me to your page. One of her teachers follows you and he receives a lot of the newsletters and reposts some of your stuff on his social media. And I think you two practice a similar practice of meditation and teach a similar practice of meditation. And so she was really interested in, in you. And then she introduced me to you. And then I started following you. And yeah, it's been really beautiful to see uh, your journey, see you share your life in a, in, a, in a really beautiful way and everything that you've learned and, and your journey. And so I've always been very attracted to that. And then I was listening to your podcast one day. And as I was listening to the podcast, I was like, you know, I would love to talk to Light one day and 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 maybe even <laughs> get on a podcast with him. Literally, I would that's yeah. a thought that went through my mind. And that same day or the next day, I think the next morning, you messaged me on uh on, on Instagram and I was like, it's just uh it's beautiful how this uh thing <laughs> light works, eh? <laughs> that's hilarious. Do you remember which episode you were listening to? Yeah, it was actually it was the episode. Uh, it was with Dr. Robin Shutkin, the Gut Bliss oh, book. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. listening. I was starting to like, you know, research a little bit more about gut health and 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 all of that. And and I was listening to that podcast. And yeah, next day wow. yeah, you showed up. So it's uh, yeah, it's magic. <laughs> awesome, awesome, cool, man. Well, look, I can't wait to get into your story and talk about what led you to that video that ended up going viral. And you know, you've got a pretty extensive background. You're Canadian. Well, you're, you're originally born in... Are you a Russian citizen because you were born in Moscow or how does that work? I can get it. If I wanted to apply for it, I could, but I haven't. So I'm mm -hmm. only Canadian citizen, but yeah, I was born in Moscow. Okay. So let's talk yeah. about the early years when you were just a kid, when you were first getting introduced to skating, which you weren't a big fan of in the early days. What were you into and how did you I know your mom was a former skater, but talk about that moment where she like introduced yeah. you or, or how you found out about that. And at the same time, what was going on in your household? Are you the oldest of the kids? I know you had an older sister. I am now. She... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am the oldest. Yeah. Yeah. I have two younger sisters. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, the journey, the journey has been uh, quite interesting. My father, obviously from Africa, Guinea, he was born in a small village in the mountains. He had the opportunity to further his education uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, I think in the 70s, 80s, there was like a, some sort of program that allowed African students to go study in the Soviet Union to further their education. And my dad was picked. He was one of them. And um, yeah, I met my mom in a city called Tashkent, which is now in uh, Uzbekistan. My older sister was born. A few years later, I was born. She was diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And so we left. Moscow to go to Germany to get some treatments for her. Uh, she ended up passing away in Germany. And then at the same time, the Soviet Union had just collapsed. And so my parents didn't really want to go back to Russia because it was chaos. I mean, apparently the mafia had taken over everything. It was, it was just, uh, it was not a place where my parents wanted to be. And then my parents being, Af my dad being African in Russia, there was a lot of racism. They just didn't want to go there. They didn't want to go to Africa and they had the opportunity to come to Canada. 
Montreal. And so that's when we immigrated. I think I was two years old. And then my sister was on her way, Julia. She was born a couple months after we came to Canada. And then a few years later, yeah, my mom has been a figure skating fan her whole life. She started skating as a kid, but had to quit very early on because she moved from the city that she was in in Russia to um, Uzbekistan and there wasn't any rinks out there. So she had to stop at the age of like 14, but always remained very passionate about the sport. And uh, she introduced my older sister to it. And then eventually when it was my turn around six years old, she introduced me to it because she realized that I needed an outlet for the energy that I had in my body. I had so much energy. I was a hyperactive kid um, and needed an outlet for that. And sitting at a piano wasn't going to work for me. I would sit there for two, three minutes, and then I start running around the piano, trying to backflip over it, things that kids shouldn't be doing. And so she introduced me to skating at the age of, at the age of six. And that first moment of being on the ice, I remember it being really playful. It was fun. I was there with my mom and she was like teaching me a couple things here and there. And, and I felt very comfortable on the ice very quickly. And it was something that came quite naturally to me. And so those first few moments on the ice in my memory were all fun and games. But that changed very quickly because at the age of six and a half, I was already competing. So she had put me with a private coach, a Russian coach, and we started very seriously training. And by six and a half, I was already competing. But again, I was so not ready for it at that age. I had never been in competition in a competition setting. It felt very uncomfortable to me. And with the culture that my mom's from in Russia, figure skating is, is, it's like, it's like hockey in Canada or, or football in America. It's a really, really popular sport. And a lot of kids go into figure skating to help their families out of poverty. And so figure skating, you go into it with the idea of being the world champion, Olympic champion. And if that's not your goal, then you're kind of wasting your time. And that's kind of the mentality that was instilled in me at a very young age, right away at the age of six and a half. And so that's where my, I feel like subconsciously I was resisting that a lot. It, it was, it was a lot of pressure at that age. And I didn't know if I enjoyed it. And so I, I tried to hide my skates in the closet. I tell my mom, I lost them. I was doing everything to try and not go to the rink, but she persevered. She found my skates. She uh, put them back in my bag, took me to the rink. And uh, she sacrificed a lot for me to be able to skate at that age. She didn't have a car. She didn't speak French or English. So she would take me on the bus at 5 a.m. when it's like minus 30 outside in the winter with my two younger sisters across the city, take me to skating, then take me to school, then back to skating. So she did a lot. And I owe everything that I'm experiencing now with figure skating to her because she, uh, she didn't let me run away from it. <laughs> You may have been too young to, I don't know, remember the experience with your older sister who passed away, but what was the vibe like in your house with that having happened? And now you're the oldest and your parents, did you feel any of that when you're growing up with them? Was there tension, stress, any kind of yeah, weirdness yeah, happening in your family? Absolutely. I think the death of a child is something that lives with the parents for a very long time and it's it's probably one of the most traumatic experiences that a parent can experience and so definitely my parents suffered from it daily i don't have any memories of her but deep down i've always felt her and my mom was telling me stories that when we would go to the hospital anytime i would come near the hospital i would just start sobbing crying i, I would be hysterical 
and I couldn't even enter the hospital. And as soon as they would take me away, I would stop crying. And so I, I know I, I, I felt the weight of the situation and my parents, it broke them in, in so many ways. Obviously I've had a few conversations with them. I know that everyone has different coping mechanisms when it comes to, to grieving and losing a loved one, especially a child. And, and I think both my parents, that was almost the moment where they started drifting away, which I know happens a lot in marriages and in couples when they lose a child. And my dad, from what I'm understanding, the way that he dealt with it was almost try to forget about it and just move forward as if it hadn't happened. And I know that that was really difficult for my mom to handle because she felt so deeply connected to my sister and it wasn't in her capacity to be able to move forward in that way. And so she felt like she was maybe abandoned by my dad in her grieving process. And so I know that just put a lot of weight on them. And then, and then on top of that, immigrating to a country with no money, they had maybe a couple hundred dollars in their pockets with me being two years old, my sister on her way, my mom not speaking French or English. So not able to work. My dad having to work day and night, he would sometimes go to school because he had to redo his diploma because it wasn't accepted when he, once he came here to Canada. So he would go to school from, let's say eight to four and then go to work from five to six and then go straight to school. And he would do that three days in a row sometimes. So the dynamic was definitely heavy, chaotic, uh, but I know my parents did everything they could to not let that have an impact on us. But as kids, we absorb everything. We feel everything. We feel the energies and the emotions that our parents are, are experiencing. So we did absorb a lot of that. And that at the same time, I feel like me going into this sport and throwing me into figure skating with this idea of needing to be the best, it, it all, all of these layers kind of compound in on top of each other to kind of put me on this journey that I've been on. And obviously there's been a pretty powerful healing journey for me to process all of these things. Because the other thing too, is my, my mom, when my sister was diagnosed with leukemia, I was inside my mom in her womb. And so the months before my birth, and then the first two years of my birth was this process of absorbing trauma. And so, yeah, that's kind of the journey that I've been on and my sisters I've been on for, for quite some time now. Was there a focus on achievement in your household growing up in those early years? Or was it about being in the moment? And what, what was the overall ideology? Because you have your parents, both immigrants. And I don't know if you were even speaking English at that point, but I know you, your mother tongue sounds like it was Russian and French, right? So uh, what, what yeah, you, Russian and French, yeah. What was like the idea yeah. of success, like as a young person, when your families would talk about that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very, very achievement based. I mean, my, if you take, for example, we were talking about figure skating and my mom in Russia right away as a kid, it was the idea of needing to be the best and we're going to train every day to be the best. And a lot of what I was experiencing, a lot of the love that I was getting was dependent on my performances. When I was skating really well, it was making my mom really happy and, and loving. And then when I wasn't skating well, I wasn't receiving the same kind of energy. So there was already there kind of this conditioning of I need to perform to be loved. But then on the other side, my father, for him, it was all about academia. The reason why he was able to 
leave Africa, leave the village, leave a really difficult and being in a situation where there's not a lot of opportunities, not a lot of, of money. In order to leave that space, he had to be the best in his university. He had to finish in the top five in the country in order to be sent to Russia to further his education. When he was in Russia, he was always the first of his class, needing to be the best of his class. And so growing up when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten during elementary school, not only was I that I have this achievement-based idea in my mind in figure skating, but also in school. My dad was very strict with us with school. We would sit with him for two, three hours and we'd have to recite all the multiplication tables, like different mathematical equations. He was an engineer in computers and so a software engineer. And so he taught me how to build a website when I was like seven years old. So there's a lot of these elements coming together that, yeah, that made it a very particular and unique situation at home and a way for me to grow up. Mm-hmm. Talk about the challenges you had with code switching as a young person in figure skating, and then talk about the whole idea of that being seen as a girl's activity and how you kind of negotiated that as a young person. Yeah. The first time I'll start with the girl sport, because I feel like that was one of the first things that kind of came to me. I vividly remember the first time I ever felt shame for doing figure skating. I was maybe 10 years old and I had won my first competition. I was so proud. I was wearing my medal. I left the ring still in my costume, my figure skating costume, because (laughs) I was excited, you know, as a kid. And so I show up in our neighborhood and we, we get out of the car to go to our house. And my neighbor's outside playing. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to my friend and just like, you know, and just show him like what I got. And so I run up to him, like super excited. And I was like, look, look, like I got my first medal. Like this is, I'm, I'm so excited. And literally his reaction was looking me from head to toe and then laughing out loud and saying, what the hell are you wearing? And I completely forgot that I was still wearing my figure skating costume. But I remember that was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, maybe what I feel figure skating is, is what I know figure skating to be, isn't what people around me perceive it as. And so I I remember feeling this immense sense of shame. And then after that, there's so many instances where people would ask me what sport I do. And when I would tell them I'm a figure skater, they would laugh at me and say, oh, this is a, is a girl sport, which is wild because, you know, sports don't have gender, but society has labeled figure skating as, as a girl sport. And so I was faced with that daily. I even went to the point where I changed my story. When people would ask me if I was an athlete, I'd be like, yeah. And they asked me what sport I did. I would be like, I'm a soccer player. I do track and field or basketball because I was tired of seeing people's reactions and having to defend myself and prove that I'm man enough to be in this sport. And that was a really difficult journey. And I kind of suppressed it for a very long time as a teenager. And then that came soaring back up in my early mid-20s and having to redefine what it is for me to be a man and, and embrace this thing that I love to do and find a way to not only live within it, but thrive within it with the deepest sense of authenticity and pride. And so that was a difficult one. And then you add 
the layer on top of that, that was the, I was the only black kid around skating. And so that was also another layer where people would look at me and say like, black people don't skate or like, you should go and play basketball or go run track and field. Like, why are you doing this sport? And then within the sport, there was also this, this idea that I wasn't fully accepted as who I was because I wanted to skate to, to, to hip hop songs. I wanted to move in a certain way. But if I did that, judges wouldn't like it. Right. And so I learned right away to please judges and please all these people within the figure skating community and shift who I am as a human being in order to not only please these people, but achieve success. Cause I wanted to be successful. That was, again, that was like this idea that I was going to be an Olympic champion. And so in order to get there, I need to change who I am. And that's when I started listening to different types of music. I started dressing differently. I literally started talking and walking differently just because I felt like I needed to fit that mold of what a, an Olympic champion looks like. And so these were the beginnings for me of, of learning how to code switch and have to adapt. And, and then I would get rewarded whenever I would do that, right? So subconsciously, it keeps reinforcing this idea that who you are isn't enough. And so I was being rewarded for skating more classical or more in a more balletic kind of way. Or when I would go out and hang out with skaters and they'd be like, oh, you're so cool. Like you're not like the other black people, right? It's like we accept the white version of you. But if you were to be anything else, we wouldn't want to be around that. So all of these things kind of reinforce this idea again, that like, there's no way that me being authentic to who I was, was going to get me anywhere, was going to give me anything positive. So I discarded that for many years. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. What was your dad's mindset in all of this? Did you ever talk to him about it? Or was it mostly you and your mom with this figure skating endeavor? Because your dad, yeah, having, was having mostly, experienced the race, It was mostly me and my mom. Mm-hmm. I internalized a lot of these experiences as a kid and as a teenager. I didn't talk about them 
to anyone. My mom didn't really know what I was experiencing. Yes, she could see it sometimes with like, I would skate really well and then I would get a score from the judges and it's completely not reflective of what I did as a performance. But again, you can't, you can't quantify that. You can't say that that's because of systemic racism or, 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 you know, because there's so many reasons why I could have gotten a lower, a lower mark. And so I feel like I never really had these conversations with my parents. I knew what my dad had experienced in Russia. He spoke about it so many times and then even him coming to Canada and not being able to get a job. So I understood already at a, at an early age, what systemic racism was and, and what this experience is and was for him. But because my goal was to be an Olympic champion, I like put all of that aside and just like had the blinders on. It was just like walking forward, walking forward, walking forward until I couldn't anymore. But I know okay, if so, I had that conversation uh, with him, I'm sure if I had that conversation with him though, I know that he would have most likely been able to guide me in a certain way as to how to process these things. Because I know, I know that he had to learn how to move mm. through that and not allow that to intoxicate his body. And so I probably could have had that conversation, but again, I was, I was just so focused on this one goal of mine. So you start placing in competitions and you're still a relatively young person, teenager and all of that. Can you just tell us what a week in the life is like of someone who's focused on being a championship skater? And then secondly, when did you find out you were a black skater? Yeah. So a typical week, let's say early, like junior high, high school, I would basically go to the rink in the morning around 5, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., would do an hour session with my coach. And then from there, I would head to school. I would take the bus for about an hour hour and a half, head to school, do class from eight to 12. And because I was in a sports study program here in, in, in Quebec, they allow students that are training in sports at a high level to do half of the day school and then the other half of the day, their respective sports. And so I would go to school from eight to 12. And then from there, I would head to the rink and skate from one to four and then take the bus back to my neighborhood, which was about an hour, hour and a half, depending on the day, then get home. And my dad would be there. And then we would sit down and do homework until however much time we needed to finish the homework. And what he would do is he would also give me extra homework. He would make me study the chapters that we were going to study maybe in a month or two to be ahead of schedule. So we would do that. And then I'd basically eat, go to bed and restart the next day. It would be five days. Normally it would be five days a week like that. And then to answer your question of like, when I noticed or realized that I was a black figure skater for me, I think when I started to, when I was around 13, 14, I had been in skating for a few years and all the years before that, I was just listening to what my mom and my coaches kind of told me to do. And I would just do it. But around 13, 14, 15, I started really like vibing with hip hop music, break dancing, dressing in a certain way. Like I was, you know, I had a certain culture that I loved to follow and I identified with. And so then I wanted to start bringing that into my world of figure skating, because again, it's, yes, it's a sport, but it's also an art form. You get to explore and choose what you want to skate to. And when I started bringing those ideas up, they'd be like, nah, that's not going to work. Like the judges are, you know, they're old school. They're not going to like it. But then I started to try to force things a little bit 
and wanted to grow my hair, get cornrows and people from Team Canada or a different place would come to me and be like, you know, if I wanted to grow my hair and let it out, they'd be like, oh, it looks dirty. It looks nappy, like cut your hair or you can't wear this because it's too sloppy. It's too. And so that's when I started to realize that, okay, like what I identify with and who I am again, isn't really accepted in the sport. And so that's when it kind of started changing for me. That's when I started to switch. I went back into, okay, well, I'm going to skate to classical music and I'm going to operate a certain way. Then it switched again when I saw for the first time a black male figure skater skate live in front of me at a competition and being truly authentically himself changed my world. It changed my world. I, I his name was Maxime Billy Fortin. He was from Quebec City. He was adopted from Haiti. And oh man, he was, mm, he was out there. He was popping, <laughs> popping on the ice. He was doing, not only was he doing like triple axles and quads, like all the most difficult jumps, but his energy was so raw. Like I still have chills talking about it now because my jaw dropped, my eyes started sparkling for the first time. And I started to realize like, wow this is what I want to be like this guy out there, the what the way that he's skating is so true to himself. And it's exactly how I want to do things that after that, I was like, okay, I got to start shifting things. And I was, I was maybe around 18, 18 years old. And that's when I started my journey of finding this authentic self and committing to only operating from, from that space. It was a long journey, but that's kind of where, where it started for me. A couple just behind the scenes questions for people who maybe maybe have kids who are interested in this. There's a huge financial cost to yeah. being a figure skater that a lot of people don't realize. And there is constant judgment. There are eating disorders. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed all of that? Was there any mental health stuff that you experienced as a result of some of that? Yeah. So the cost, let's start with the cost. The cost is ridiculously expensive. I mean, a pair of, like as a kid, when you're just starting, just joining a club is a few hundred dollars. And then ice time you have to pay is a couple grand a year. And then your coaches are a couple grand, if not more a year, and then costumes and then all of the other things. So you're starting at like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 a year if you want to be a competitive skater as a kid. And then the thing is that the more that you grow in the sport, the more expensive it gets. So towards the end of my career, I was dishing out like fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to compete, right? Like it's unbelievable. And my parents, they helped me as much as they could. They did everything, every penny they had, every extra cent they had, they put it towards my my skating. And I had two other sisters that were also passionate about skating. So those three of us in the family wanting to skate. And unfortunately, because I was the oldest kid and I was progressing really fast. My mom decided to put all of the funds towards me and which, which helped me tremendously. But then it left with both of my sisters not having the same resources, even though they were as passionate as I was with the sport, they didn't have the opportunity to do that. So that's one way that it's impacted us. But then my parents had to file for bankruptcy a couple of times because of debts and because of, you know, needing to do these things. But I was really lucky as well that I had coaches that would barely charge us. I mean, my second coach, like for eight years, like we barely paid him and he was okay with it. He saw the talent. He was like, you know, whenever you have something, just like, you know, whatever it is, we're here. We want to help. We we believe in him. And so I was lucky to get that. But then not only was that there during my my early years, but 
I always, for some reason, fell on coaches that were very lenient with payments. And, and so my parents and, and my family caught a massive break. And if it wasn't for these coaches allowing me to train with them almost for free, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here now. And so it's something that is, is, is a problem in our sport. And, and obviously we're with, you know, a lot of us are trying to find different ways to bridge that gap, but it's not easy. And then when you talk about mental health, you know, all of these things kind of pile on top of each other. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I realize it now I was suffering from OCD from a very young age because there's so much stress and there's so much anxiety in my mind and in my body needing to control things. I would need to control everything in my surrounding in order for me to feel okay. And that led me to, in my twenties, like going through a whole day, like making sure if the day before I had a good competition or I had a good practice and I entered the rink holding the door with my left hand, I would need to make sure I did the same thing. If I stepped into the room with my right foot, I needed to do the same thing. If I put my skate on, in the, it, like it became that my whole day was packed with these things that I needed to do in order to feel in control. And when I realized that that wasn't helping me, and when I started to wanting to break down those ways of operating, I suffered a lot. And, and as athletes, we suffer a lot with mental health because there's so much that rides on performance. And there's so much that comes from achieving and being in the state of mind of needing to achieve constantly puts you consistently in the space of always needing to go and get more. And you're always in the space that you, what you have right now, what you've done right now is enough and you're not enough. And you need to continue to get more to validate your sense of worthiness. And so the description of unworthiness, every single athlete, at least that I know, a lot of figure skaters struggle with that. Because it's, mm -hmm. it's, especially in a sport where you're judged, you know, a judged sport is very subjective. And so you're constantly in this space where it's not just like, start the timer, you cross the line first, that's it, you're champion, right? There's all of these layers as to these elements that could lead you to become a champion, but you're constantly trying to do everything you can to control as many of these elements as possible. And 90% of these elements aren't out of your control, right? And so you're, you're constantly stuck in this cycle and it's hard. And then for me, as, as, a, as a boy in skating, I struggled with my mental health when it came to, again, redefining who I was as a man. I, I questioned so much of these things and needed to almost step away from the sport and start the journey inward in order for me to be where I am now, where I feel like I can be within this ecosystem and, and thrive and be grounded and be centered and operate from a space of of truth but it's it's a long it was long journey to get there so mental health is something that a lot of athletes deal with and yes we have sports psychologists but sports psychologists help you perform better it doesn't necessarily help you with the processing of emotions and finding your yeah yeah just diving in you know so just before you started to kind of go inside to seek fulfillment, you had a plan, right? You had this plan. I'm going to be in the Olympics. I'm going to try out for 2014. And then again, and later talk about your plan and, and, and how all that went well, and then how that kind of led to the Africa trip, which then yeah. led to yeah. the realization that you shouldn't be externalizing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The first plan was to go to the qualifications for 
the 2010 Olympics, but then I got injured. I, I had knee surgery. And uh, that was kind of the first time that I injured myself seriously, where I had to miss a whole year of skating. And that was a struggle. I was 18. I was just kind of like on the rise. And so in my mind, that kind of year of stopping was was really was really difficult. But I did learn a lot. I started to understand the, the concept of if you take a situation that can be perceived as bad or as a failure and you take that and transform and play with it a little bit, you can transform it into the most beautiful gift that you've ever received. And that's when that kind of started simmering for me. And then 2014 happened where, again, it was going to be in Russia. It was going to be the beginning of my journey to becoming an Olympic champion. And uh, I didn't qualify for these games. And that really, it started the questioning of, is this really my path? But I quickly, it's like the question kind of started creeping in and I quickly was like, ah, no, 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 no. And I put that, <laughs> put that away. <laughs> we got, we got, a, we got work to do. We got somewhere we got to be. We got something we got to do. Let's just, let's just keep going. And so I kept going for a whole year. Did, did you have help with that? Did someone help to keep you focused on what was forward instead of what no, didn't happen? I was, I was so motivated. Like I, I was so dedicated to this idea. I was so sold to the idea of being an Olympic champion. My entire self-worth, my, my, who I was, was wrapped in this idea of being an Olympic champion. So I believed it a hundred percent. It was like, I was almost living in, in a form of, of delusion in a way, like not because I didn't have the talent to become an Olympic champion, but this idea that the fixed idea that I had, that there's no other path of life possible except that one. I was totally dialed into that. And so I didn't even, I didn't even need anyone to kind of redirect me. I did it myself. <laughs> and so that whole year after that was rough. It was really, really, really rough. Training was tough. I didn't compete well. But again, that year, the top guy in Canada was taking a year off. And so now the door was open. So it was my turn, you know, it was my turn to step into this space and be this Canadian champion and finally start my journey towards being an Olympic champion. You know, you see how it's like that. Those are ways that just my mind would automatically put things in these perspectives. And so I showed up at nationals and a couple of weeks before my father called me and, and my grandfather fell into a coma. He was 99 years old heart just kind of stopped for a little bit. They kind of revived him, but he was in a coma for a little bit. So my dad was telling me he was going to go to Africa to go visit his father for hopefully at least being able to be there. If he was, if he was going to pass, he was going to be there with him. But if he wakes up, then at least you'll have maybe one last conversation with him before he passes. And so, and he asked me to come with him, but I, I said, I couldn't because I had nationals and then I was going to be national champion. And then I was going to go to four continents championships and then worlds. And so I had all this plan laid out. And so I showed up at nationals and it was a complete, complete disaster. I honestly felt like I wasn't in my own body when I was on the ice. I stepped out and it was almost like nothing worked. Everything I knew about figure skating, all of a sudden it's like, I forgot everything. And it just happened just like that. And so the competition ended and not only did I not win, but I, I, I had my worst, the worst results that I had ever had at these uh, Canadian nationals. And I sat there and, and I, I was like, I don't understand. And I kept asking myself, like, why is this happening to me? Why, like, why is this happening to me? This, this, this question. And then right away, the thought came of like, well, 
if this is not who I'm going to be, if this is not the path that is meant for me, then who am I? Who are you? Why are you even doing this? All the reasons why I'm doing this sport were based in external factors. Nothing was coming from within. There was no fulfillment in what I was doing. I was only there to please, to achieve. And as soon as all of these ideas kind of, uh, these thoughts came into my mind, my immediate thing was wanting to shut it all off again, because that's the thing that I do as an athlete. You learn to shut off your emotions, shut off your brain and just kind of stick to the plan. And so I was trying to do that and it wasn't working. And right away, I also noticed and realized that I had this free time now. And so I called my dad and I was like, I'm coming to Africa with you. And that's when the journey just like really took off for me because I showed up to Africa with my dad. I got to meet the most incredible man, my grandfather, who I'm named after, who was an imam mm. and has, had dedicated his life to God. And this meeting between grandfather and grandson was so important in, in, in my culture. My father was my grandfather's first son, and I'm my father's first son. And so we had to meet. And he just came out of the coma right before we came to Africa. And so all of the pieces were just starting to come together. It was almost like it was written. And it was, you know, and, and so I show, and showed up and all these questions were kind of coming into my mind and I decided to stop. And I decided that I was going to stop skating right now. I'm taking a decision. I'm done with skating until I find something that sparks charm within me, that sparks excitement within me. And so I spent these three weeks in the village and I met my grandfather and the way that he was looking at me, the way that he was talking to me, I didn't even understand what he was saying because we don't speak the same language, but I could feel his, the love that he had for me. It was, it was the deepest sense of unconditional love that I had ever experienced in my life. It had nothing to do with, he didn't know what I was doing in figure skating. He didn't know the results I had. He didn't know anything about my life in Canada. He just would see me as a human being and who I was and was loving me deeply for it. And that feeling sparked something incredible inside of me. And I started to realize that this connection, this ability to love and this ability to be loved for who you are, there is absolutely nothing more beautiful than that. And so I spent these next three weeks absorbing that and seeing also how my grandmother, my grandfather, my uncles would operate in the village and how they would live with nature. There's no electricity, there's no running water, but they have this, this way of moving that is so content and so at peace. And I started craving that. I was like, what is this? Why am I here in Canada when I have all these resources, all these plans, all these things, and, and I'm miserable, I'm suffering. And so sitting with this and observing that started to guide me towards this, this journey of finding fulfillment in a different way in figure skating. And so I started to realize that for me, what I've always loved to do when I was, and, and again, I'm talking specifically with, with figure skating. One of the things that I always love to do is, is to connect with audiences while I'm on the ice and, and, and share this story, this thing that I had inside of me. I always had that in the back of my mind, but that was never the priority because none of that technically gives you results. And so it didn't matter. But I realized that I have this ability and I do have this gift of being able to communicate that to people with my body. I am able to tell stories and make people feel things while I'm on the ice. 
And so that started my journey with moving with a different, completely different intention. And I started to dive so much deeper into this idea of being on the ice, but being a channel, being a channel of the universe source God and, and being able to move that through my body to help people feel this sense of presence when they watch me and feel connected in a way that they haven't felt connected to other skaters. And that sparked this raging like fire inside my body. And when I was sitting there for these few weeks, I, I finally started to realize that I could use figure skating as a tool and as a way to communicate and as a way to connect on much deeper levels, not only to people, not only to myself, but to everything. And so that's where this journey really started for me. And yes, I was still battling because that was, that was, yes, it was, a, it was a realization in that moment, but I still had 20 years of conditioning in my brain that I had to start undoing and started, and I, I needed to start ripping out these roots that were not allowing me to step into that space. And so that's where that journey started for me. So your skating career didn't last, your, your performance career didn't last much longer after that trip. You, you started to go within and connecting to the original purpose of sharing your story with the audience and all of that, but you kept getting these concussions. Yeah. What does a concussion feel like when, when you get a, you've, you've had several of them it's and the terrible. last one was the most intense. What, what does that actually feel like when you're trying to heal from that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different symptoms that individuals could feel. And depending on who you are, you'll feel different symptoms. But for me, there was this insane pressure in my head, this burning in my eyes constantly, and this, this fogginess in my brain and in my eyes that I couldn't get away from. And then to add on top of that insomnia, I couldn't sleep and then elevated anxiety. And then because of the anxiety the sleep was worse because I wasn't sleeping. My anxiety was getting worse. And then it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's like this, this cycle. And so, yeah, my, I, I had a few concussions, but you're right. My last one was, was the worst, was the worst one. And I can obviously, uh, I would love to share more about that one because it taught me a lot, but I don't wish concussions on anyone. It's really, it's, it's debilitating because it's, it's not something you can, like I had knee surgery. I knew once the surgery was done, Eight months from now, I'll be back to fully athlete mode, do whatever I want to do. There's a timeline. Concussions, there's no timeline. It could be two weeks. It could be 24 hours. It could be three months, two years. You don't know. And so this uncertainty fuels so much of this inner turmoil that you experience. So for me, all of these, like in a way, it served as, a, as an important purpose for me, especially that last one that I had it served a, a really important lesson for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It took you a while to recover from that one too, but I guess you, you, you had this sort of ceremonial last final performance. You knew it was the final one. The audience knew yeah. it was your last one. Can you talk about that? How you sort of graduated yourself yeah. from that um, aspect of your career? Yeah. And if, if you don't mind, I'll take you back just to set up of that year. That year was the Olympic trials for 2018. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be my last season. I knew it was going to be my last time trying to make the Olympics. And at that point, I had let go of the idea of wanting to be an Olympic champion and all of that. I started on a completely different path. But again, like 
my conditioning was still telling me that I wouldn't be enough if I didn't make it to the Olympics. I needed to at least make it to the Olympics because that's every athlete's dream. And a lot of athletes, if that's their dream and they don't make it, it feels almost like a failure. And so I, I decided I was going to make it my goal to make it to the Olympics. And I was skating really well over the summer. And then early September, I fell and started feeling right away these symptoms of concussion, which I knew really well at that point. But I was like, you know, it was going to be fine. Maybe a few days a week, like I didn't really hit my head that much. And so I was like, I, I'm sure it's going to go by pretty quickly and I'll be able to get back into training and prepare for the Olympics. And so I, I waited, I waited a couple of days. It wasn't getting any better. I waited a week. It wasn't getting any better. And then two weeks in, I was like, okay, I have a competition coming. I feel like I have to disqualify myself from that competition or not disqualify, but pull out from the competition, withdraw because I won't be able to do it. But again, I had hope that within the next few days, like there was always like in a couple of days, it's going to get better. In a couple of days, it's going to get better. And it wasn't changing at all. And when I say at all, like day one to like day 60 was the same. I couldn't be on a bike, a stationary bike for five minutes without then being in my room for three days from headache and pain. And that was like that for two months. And every day that went by, Again, this like dream, this slight little dream of going to the Olympics was just getting further and further away from me every single day. And I was getting deeper and deeper into this dark place. I knew that I was operating from a different place, but I, I still had this tie to the Olympics and I wouldn't feel like I would be enough if I didn't go to the Olympics. And so this relationship was just kept fueling itself. And I kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness. And two and a half months went by and I, I I didn't know at that point, I had no idea what was happening. I was really just trying to get better, but I had a beautiful gift come my way. And early on, when I first, within the first couple of days of my concussion, I went to see my healer and she's worked with me on energy healing for a few years. And and I went to see her and and I remember she was working on me. And at the end, she said, I, I kept seeing these visions of one door closing and 19 opening. And at the time, I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know. I didn't, it didn't register to me. Again, I was, I was still very focused on what I, what I needed to do. But two months later, I hadn't seen her. I hadn't talked to her. She randomly was walking downtown in the city. My sister was walking by her. They knew each other. And she stopped my sister and was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing you. And my sister was like, I haven't seen you in a long, they hadn't seen each other in over a year. I don't even know how long. And she was like, I need you to tell Elijah something. He's been on my mind. I've been feeling certain things. I need you to tell him something. So my sister called me and she was telling me that. And, and I was like, okay, like, what does she have to say? And she spoke three words and, <laughs> and everything changed. She looked at me and she said, all she told me to tell you is let it go. And instantly, when I tell you instantly, there's no other way to describe it. But instantly, as soon as I heard the words, let it go, it's as if I was being spoken to by God. And immediately in my entire body, a thousand pounds of weight just lifted off of me and I got it. I understood. It resonated with me on such a deep level. I was like, of course. Why am I doing this to myself? Why am I trying to hold on to this thing 
that I've started letting go for so long? And why am I allowing myself to live in this space of needing to do that in order to feel like I'm enough? I am enough. I've done enough. I don't need to do anything more. There's so much waiting for me outside of this career of being an Olympian. Why am I still holding on to this? And, and, and for some reason in that moment, it completely lifted and left my body. And immediately after that, the next day I started healing. My concussion symptoms started going down, but I had already let go of the idea of even needing to go to nationals. I was done. I was like, I'm, I'm going to let this heal and I'm going to go and move on and live the rest of my life. And so making that decision just lifted everything inside of me. And, and I was, I was, I found this new clarity, this new vision. And I, and I started living from that. And then once I started seeing my symptoms getting better, I got back on the ice and I was just kind of skating around and I was feeling better all of a sudden. And so my coach was like, well, why don't we just like try to get you to nationals just to like do one more competition, just to finish it off. And I was like, you know what? Yes, that spoke to me. And I was like, I feel like I want to send a goodbye message to all the people that followed me, all the people that supported me and given me their time and have been part of my life. I want to go out to nationals and just skate from a place of pure gratitude. And I trained for about a month and a half and it was hard. It was it, because I was, it was three months of no training. And then I had about four weeks to get ready for this competition. I gave everything I had. I just trained every day and pushed, 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 showed up at nationals. And it was almost like a brand new, it was like the first time I've entered a competition, but with a brand new energy and a brand new space. And, and I, I couldn't believe that I was walking around and I had zero levels of anxiety, zero levels of stress. And I was just completely at peace with what the situation was. And I spent the whole three days training for this competition there at nationals, being on the ice and just feeling only gratitude for being here and having the ability to experience this one last time and having the ability to share my passion with Canada and with the people that are watching one last time. And then the day of the first competition, I was warming up for the practice in the morning and I started getting these visions in my mind of the stadium being on their feet, me crying, feeling this sense of fulfillment, the deepest sense of fulfillment that I'd ever felt. And I started crying because I was like, this is so beautiful. And, and for some reason, I knew that that's what was was going to happen tonight. I, I had no doubt in my mind that I was getting a, a vision of what was going to unfold tonight. And I felt, again, only the deepest sense of love. And I showed up at the competition and put my skates on, got on the ice, and I received the most beautiful gift. And I was able to share the most beautiful gift with everyone that was watching there. We shared a moment. We shared something that you don't often see, ever see really in figure skating because it's so focused on technical abilities that I was able to step on the ice and share a part of myself that people haven't seen in the figure skating world. And that was the most beautiful experience that I could have had. And from that moment on, that was it. I was done. I didn't need to go back. I didn't need to do another competition. Everything that I've experienced in the sport in that moment just closed as a perfect loop. And till this day, when I think of that send-off, when I think of that moment, it allowed me at that time to continue and to move on to other things with this 
this sense of fulfillment that I hadn't felt for 20 years up until that moment. It was really beautiful. At that point, people in the skating world obviously know who you are, right? So you have some opportunities or whatever with that, maybe some show skating or whatever. What's the financial aspiration as a man, grown man who retires himself from competition? Like, what are we talking about? Did show skating pay a lot of money or you got to get a side job? Like, yeah. So you hear these stories about Olympian athletes, even, you know, having to work at smoothie shops and stuff. What are you, what are you doing for money? Yeah. Figure skating, figure skating is not a really lucrative path. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) When it comes to, to, to finances, if you're Olympic champion, you, you like, you won the, the biggest competition of your life. You can live off of that for about four years, you know, and you can make some money, you know, for about four years, like comfortable living. But then once there's a new Olympic champion in your category, you're forgotten about, right? So there's a very limited amount of time, even for the people that are the champions of the champions. And so for everyone else, there's not much. I was lucky enough that, well, I wouldn't say lucky enough, but because of my path, because of my journey, because I found this authentic self within me, I was able to gift and give the world of figure skating something that no one else could. And so a lot of skating productions wanted that. And they wanted that in their show because no one else could do what I do. And so I was able to make a good living out of it, but I had to be on tour 365 days a year. I would go from Japan to Europe, to North America, back to Korea, back to Europe. All year round, I would have to be on planes in hotels and that's the lifestyle. If you want to make it lucrative, that's what I had to do. And so I did that for two years and then the pandemic hit and everything stopped and show business was on pause. And so there was nothing else for me to do except sit on my couch with my wife, which was actually a really beautiful thing because my wife and I were both really busy at the time. She had her busy career. I had my busy career. So the first three years of our lives, we spent just like kind of traveling, meeting each other in Japan, then meeting each other in LA, then meeting each other in, in, in Europe. And that's kind of how we lived. And so spending the time with her at that time was really beautiful for our relationship. But when the pandemic hit, I spent the next two years not doing one show. And so then you're stuck in this position where you're so dependent on these productions to not only function, but then to want to hire you in order to make money. And so that's when I decided, and my wife and I, we had a lot of conversations and we wanted to find a way to not be dependent on these production companies. And so that's one of the reasons why we started making videos. And the other one was because I was starting missing this dynamic of being able to share and and create and express myself through movement, through skating. And so we started making videos, which I was very resistant of. I had so much resistance and I can tell you all about it. But if it wasn't for my wife, Michelle, I wouldn't be in the situation that I am now. But we started making videos and that gave us all the freedom that we were looking for, that I was looking for. Because not only do I get to do what I do, do what I love, share myself, express myself, but then I get to do that on a much bigger platform. I get to inspire people across the world. I get to inspire young Black, Indigenous, and people of color to pick up skates or to have representation within the sport of figure skating. But at the same time, I get to financially be in a space that I've never been in before and would never have been able to be in if it was just me doing skating shows around the world. So let's talk about that day that you shot that video that went viral, right? 
had you done a lot of wild ice skating and the backflip thing? Is that like, was that like your signature move or is that something <laughs> you were, had just started practicing? Yeah. Backflip is something I've been doing since I was 15 years old. It's something okay. I saw. So you doing a backflip is like somebody just like doing a cartwheel. It's like nothing. You basically. Nothing of it. Basically, basically, it's something I've been doing for a very long time. And it, and within the figure skating world, we know backflip as one of the easiest things to do. Yes, getting over <laughs> the fear of going backwards, being on skates, on ice, like all of that. Yes, that's one thing. But once you get over that and you learn how to do the backflip, the margin of error is so small. Like it's really hard to miss. So mm-hmm. it's something that, I can, that I've been throwing for over a decade now. But the wild eyes... That was something that I'd never experienced before. And I knew since the beginning of my healing journey, this journey going inwards, I've started to connect deeply to nature and having this relationship with nature that I'd never had before. And one day I had this thought like, gosh, how incredible would it be to do what I love to do most, skate, express myself, but do it on ice that was formed by mother nature and then be in nature with mountains and trees and i'm like i could do that and never skate again and and it would be the most beautiful moment of my life and and so a few years later once the first video kind of went viral the one that i i just kind of went into a local neighborhood found a ring through a backflip and that started kind of going off a little bit a friend of mine was like hey i know someone in the mountains that goes out and finds ice and i know you've been wanting to skate so let me put you in touch with them and so i reached out to the guy and he was like i'm going like literally tomorrow morning at like 6 a.m if you want to join and i was like done done deal i'm grabbing my skates i'm gonna head out there and so we did but i had prepared something that i wanted to shoot out there i knew that the day was going to come that i was going to be able to go out there and shoot in the mountains so i wanted to prepare something special that i could feel deeply connected to when i'm performing and find a way to share that beauty with everyone. So I prepared something, got someone to come, got someone to shoot my video. And then we stepped out there. And and the first hour, I just kind of stood there. I just spent the whole hour just being in awe of the, the beauty that it is. And even the, even the quality of the ice was completely different. It's not like what we have in indoor rinks. And yes, indoor rinks are maintained, Zambonis, all of that technology, like it's smooth, it's great. But what Mother Nature creates... When that first freeze, there's nothing like it. There's not, you can't recreate that sensation on your blades. And so I spent the first hour just being in awe of that. And then we shot that video and and I felt so, so present, like going out in nature and doing what I do in nature allows me to tap into a, a place of presence that it's even easier to access than when I'm performing in an indoor ring. And so being able to be there and be so present and it kind of soak in all of this was magical. And then I shared that and that went viral. And so it, it just reaffirmed for me that everything that I was doing and the path that I was on right now was exactly where I was meant to be and exactly what I was meant to be doing. And I, I shouldn't, even though there's no shouldn't, but there's no reason for me to question that anymore because it's it's so in line and it's so real that that was the start for all of this now. And that moment led to now me talking to you, which is me like geeking <laughs> out heart. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. It's like after hearing your whole story, it's like every single thing that you experienced, like you were the only person that could have done that, that could have shot those videos. There's no other skater that could have done that. 
And it's it's like that guy with the cranberry juice on the skateboard. You yeah. Know? Yeah. If you, yeah, look, yeah. If, you yeah. if you look at his account, I went back and looked at his account and he would post these videos of him lip syncing and basically grooving out to these different songs for like over a year. So that day that he shot that one, that was just another day. That was nothing special for him. Yeah. But, and, but, to, uh, the world, but to the world, it was something that resonated with people so deeply. And, and, I, and I think that's the beauty also of, of, of social media is there's this ability to be who you are and do the things that you've been doing. I, I'm not skating any differently now than I was when I first retired or even when I was competing, but my skills are the same. But the way people in interact with it and engage with it is completely different now. And part of it, a big part of it is my intention and the way the, the space that I'm operating from, but then also is the ability to be able to be on, on a phone and, and be able to experience people's lives in, in a way that you wouldn't be able to without the beauty of, of social media. And yes, there's so much negative things about social media, but for me, it changed my life in, in some of the most beautiful ways. And I used to be the guy that like didn't want to be on social media, didn't want to post, then didn't want to do any of these things. And then it turned out that it's one of the most beautiful gifts that I could have received in my life. And so I'm just so deeply grateful to mm -hmm. these incredible platforms and, and the people that are existing within it. You also had to overcome your resistance to being yourself, to completely showing up 100% unapologetic. This is who I am. This is what I'm bringing to this, yeah. my expression of this sport. And I think that's the lightning in the bottle that those videos captured. Absolutely. And that, that inspired. That I, I, I want to give a lot of credit to my wife. Mm. I was so scared. I had so much fear in presenting myself authentically like that for so many reasons, of course, but I felt so uncomfortable. And the gentle push forward, the gentle embrace, the unconditional love that I received throughout the process of me trying to muster the courage to do it. If she wasn't there, none of this would have happened. She gave me the strength to tap into that space and not be afraid. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for her support every day. She's only been that for me. So yes, it was a lot of my journey, my career and everything that I've done and the journey that I went in to be able to find that authenticity and find that space of who Elaj Balde is in this lifetime is with her help that I was able to find the courage to share that with everyone. So you started this alliance. Talk about that. What is the intention behind it? And why did you start it with, I think, a 10 other skaters as opposed to doing it by yourself or maybe with a couple of people? Yeah. So the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance started basically right after the murder of George Floyd. There was an energy and a movement there that I think none of us had ever seen really up until that time. And so a few skaters... And I, we just started connecting with each other in a way that we hadn't before. And we started talking about our own experiences in skating. And we started to realize that no matter where you were from, whether you were from Europe, North America, South Africa, all of our experiences were similar. We're very, very, very similar. And so 
that's when we were like, okay, well, let's create a safe space for all of us from all over the world to be able to step into it and share and, and feel safe to be able to share our experiences and feel supported. And so we kind of started just for the first few weeks, just talking to each other, skaters from all over the world. We'd join on Zoom and just talk. And then we started to see that like national sport organizations like Skate Canada, US Figure Skating would post things like, you know, we support the Black Lives Matter movement and this and this and blah, 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 and all of that. And, and we were like, none of your actions have showed any support. So you're saying this, but like, what are you, what are you going to do? Is this, this seems extremely performative. And so what we decided to do is we wanted to form this alliance that was going to keep these national sport organizations accountable for actually making change and, and wanting to create the kind of environment that we, the way that we experience the sport maybe the next generation of skaters of black indigenous and people of color would have a different experience. And so we wanted to keep them accountable for that. And so we founded the figure skating diversity and inclusion Alliance. And we, we basically made these calls to action and we send them to these national sport organizations and U S figure skating, not a lot shifted, but skate Canada, a lot of things started changing and we started to see that they're really taking this seriously. And so then we saw that there's there's this this opportunity to change the way that our sport is operating. And so that's why we felt like as a group of people, as an alliance, we would be stronger in being able to keep these people accountable. And then at the same time, there's a group of incredible Black women that started this mentorship program called Big Skater, Little Skater. And basically, they would link mentors. So like, people like us that have made it in the sport and they would connect them with younger black skaters who would potentially want some guidance or need some guidance or just bridge that gap between some of us that made it in the sport and they could be there as a support system for these younger skaters on their journeys. And so that was something that was really beautiful and that I feel like really, really proud that I've been part of that group. And then last year, my wife and I, we started our own foundation called the Skate Global Foundation. And that's something that we've been really passionate about. And we've seen a couple of things that figure skating would... We talked earlier about the price of figure skating and how expensive it is and people being priced out of the sport. Well, another issue is also accessibility to ice. A lot of underserved communities don't have rinks or outdoor rinks. There's a lot of rinks in Canada, almost everywhere. Every neighborhood has one, but most of them are middle-class or upper-class neighborhoods. And so in underserved communities, you don't see a lot of these rinks. And so the access to figure skating or just hockey or skating in general isn't the same. And so we started to realize that there's things that we could do to help in different ways. And so that's why we started the Skate Global Foundation. And it's basically based under three pillars. One is EDI, everything that has to do with equity, diversity, inclusion. The second one is mental health, because it's such an important topic. It's such an important thing to talk about. And both my wife and I are so deeply committed to the journey, the healing journey. So it's it's something we want to be able to find ways to give back on and and then climate change. And so every project that we do kind of falls under one of these three pillars. But right now we're really focused on on EDI because it's my it's my immediate experience right now. It's what I've been living in in the past two years, especially since the, the murder of George Floyd. And so I want to, since the train is kind of going, you know, we want to put a lot of our resources in that to help further the change as much as possible. And so 
yeah, it's something that we feel like has been missing in skating. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that are still missing in skating, but slowly and slowly, step by step, we'll try to bring in as many resources and as much change as we as we can. You mentioned in your last performance the visual that you had. And I know that with your alliance and foundation, you teach visualization. You talk about the importance of visualizing. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit in case somebody's about to go into a very important experience and how can they use that tool to sort of amplify or enhance their experience? Yeah, well, that's something I started doing once I started practicing meditation. A friend of mine who was an athlete was talking to me about visualization and I didn't really know what it was, but basically what he explained to me was like, your subconscious mind doesn't necessarily know the difference between something that's happening in real time right now, right here, or something that's happening in your mind. And so he told me, he was like, he told me there was this research that was done where they took a group of basketball players and they split the group between two. And one group was allowed to go practice free throws every day for a certain amount of time for a certain amount of weeks. The other group was only allowed to visualize themselves doing the free throws for the same amount of time. They weren't allowed to go and touch a ball and actually throw a ball. And at the end of the study, they realized that the people that were visualizing versus the people that weren't visualizing had equal, if not better success than the people that were there in the gym every day practicing. <laughs> so I was like, what? And when he started telling me these things, I was like, okay, well, like, tell me more. Like, let's get into this. And so basically what I started doing is, is I started to realize, well, if I combine visualization and I combine daily training, that's almost like I'm doing another set of, of training without using my body. I could use my mind to do a whole training session. And so I would sit there basically and I would visualize myself doing all of my jumps in my mind. I would go through it in slow motion. I would go through every detail, what it feels like in my body, what it looks like outside of my body. And I would go through every motion. I would go through the entire routine. I would put the song in my head and I would go through my performance and I would imagine myself doing it exactly how I want to do it every day. And by doing that every day, your subconscious mind, again, doesn't know the difference whether if it actually happened or not. And so I did that constantly and constantly and constantly. And by the end, I was, and at first it's difficult with sports, it's, it's kind of difficult to imagine yourself doing things very well, because I know for me and a lot of athletes, when you start doing it, you, you start feeling yourself making mistakes or like things are a little bit weird because your, tra your brain is not trained to do these motions without actually needing to do them physically. But the more that you continue to train that part of your brain, everything becomes so smooth and your body retains all that information. And it's the most powerful tool that I've ever used as an athlete and in my life. I think visualization is a practice that everyone should learn. It's, it's powerful, it's powerful as hell. Yeah, it changed my life in so many ways. And final question for you. How are you thinking about success these days after everything you've experienced? Oh, that's a very good question. Success to me has so many layers, but the root, the core of it to me is how deeply have I gone into my inner world and how much have I understood of who I am and how much awareness have I developed in my life? 
Because with that, what you can create in your life is limitless. It's infinite. And so for me, whatever it is that I want to achieve externally, I first start internally and continue to rip out the roots and the things that maybe are restricting me or not allowing me to step into the space that I want to step into or do the things that I want to do or achieve the things that I want to achieve. If I rip out those roots and create the space that I need to step into it, then every action I will take after that will lead me towards it. And so, yeah, in short, that's, that's my answer. <laughs> Beautiful, man. Well, thank you so much for being so transparent and sharing your story. I'm honored again, to be able to have this experience with you. And I just want to acknowledge you, man, for showing up as much as you have and for staying true to your path, even though you didn't even know you were on your path (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) And I look forward to hopefully getting a chance to cross paths with you at some point, at some point soon in person. I appreciate it. And I uh, I want to acknowledge you as well. And and thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for your time. And I really hope that we'll, uh, we'll cross paths in person. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Alaj Balde. For more inspiration, make sure to follow Alaj on the socials at Alaj Balde. That's E-L-L-A-D-J-B-A-L-D-E. And of course, we'll drop links to everything that Alaj and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, We've got an incredible archive of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can even search interviews by subject matter in case you want to hear more episodes only about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges, et cetera, et cetera. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and search Light Watkins podcast, you can put a face to a story. And if you don't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of every podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes to hear all of the chit chat in the beginning of the episode and the false starts and the mistakes, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, which is thehappinessinsiders.com. You'll also have access to a bunch of challenges such as the 108-day meditation challenge, 30-day mindfulness triathlon and master classes for becoming the best version of yourself. And then finally, to help me help you bring the guest bests possible to this podcast, it would go a very, very long way if you could just take a few seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is look down at your screen, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the seven or so previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Hit the one on the right, which is a five-star rating. If you find this show and and what we're trying to do to be inspiring, and if you want to go the extra mile, please consider leaving a review, just one line. Maybe it could be a recommendation of which episode somebody should start with if they're a brand new listener to the podcast. Thank you in advance for that. I really look forward to seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose, their path. And until then... Keep trusting your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thanks and have a great day. 
If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.